So uh, tonight is Wednesday night. It is May 26, 2010. Our message is the King's Table. And uh, we're going to be in Romans 4. Hey, how good was worship? Two-thirds of our worship team. Two-thirds of our worship team was out. Uh, we didn't know that till right away. Matthew had some challenges today and that he was helping a technologically challenged pastor try to work some other issues out. And uh, God doesn't seem to mind. It's not an excuse to be unprepared. It's certainly not an excuse to have our worship team miss. But at the same time, all he really needs is a willing heart. He, he doesn't need perfection. He, he handled that part. He handled the perfection part. Amen. Boy, isn't that a freeing thought? Yes. Yeah. He handled the perfection part. So Miss Wakefield, Brandy, Cody, they don't have to be perfect. He already did that for them. All they have to do is be willing. CJ doesn't have to get it all right, although we appreciate you trying, brother. It means that God's credited him with something. Isn't that cool? Doesn't that take some pressure off of you? Uh, are you like me and that you... You strive, you want to get it right, and it hurts you when you don't? Yeah, but there are people in this world that all they can think about is that they haven't gotten it right. This is an assault on who God has called you to be. It places too much burden upon you and not enough trust in what Jesus has done for you. In Romans 4, I want to share something with you about an ancient covenant. There was a covenant with a man named Abraham. I don't have, I mean, I've taught this so many times tonight. I don't want to teach on the Abrahamic covenant. What I would like to tell you is that God picked a man. And Genesis 18 says he picked him because he would teach his children what was right. In other words, what God invests in you, he doesn't simply want to waste on you. He wants it to grow. He wants it to be passed down for everybody that ever comes into contact with you. And God knew Abraham would do that. He went so far in Genesis 12 as to tell Abraham, I'm going to bless you, man. And I'm going to bless you to the point that all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. Now, weird prosperity preachers with funny colored hair and a penchant for wanting to get into your wallet have made that all kind of strange things. Our God picked one people group, the Jews, to entrust his word to, to entrust a covenant with that would minister to the entire world. And then it narrowed down to a single man who is the king of the Jews, and his name is Yeshua. It's written in Hebrew on the front of this pulpit. And anybody who recognizes his kingship, his lordship, in a real meaningful way in their lives has entered into the promises that were once given to Abraham. Okay, That's the Abrahamic covenant. It's all we'll teach on it tonight. But I want you to hear the way in which it's presented in Romans 4. Romans 4, starting in verse 16. Therefore, the promise, all of those promises I just told you about, Therefore, the promise comes by faith. Another way to say that is trust. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith or trust of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. Do you realize that when the man's name was still Abram, A-B-R-A-M, Abram meant exalted father. 
This is the state in which the man was living. He had no children. He had no hope of having children. And yet God comes to him and changes his name from exalted father to Abraham, the father of many nations. That is a God who says something about you today that is not literally true about you today, and he treats it as if it is. And then he expects you to act as if it is. Abraham couldn't walk around all day, every day, saying, you know, I don't have any kids yet, and my wife's old. I don't have any kids yet, and my wife's old. Because even at the mention of his name, it was a reminder that God's promise was alive in his life. A name in the Bible is a function. And his function was to be the father of the nations. It didn't matter that he didn't have children because God said, you will be the father of many nations. This is as good as done. Now that's all fine and well when we're talking about Abraham. But what about you? When the Bible says that you are a son of God, do you walk around calling yourself a poor old sinner? When the Bible says that you are a saint, do you feel less than competent just to do your secular job? When the Bible says that you're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, how dare us feel as if we've been pressed into the depths of hell? If God called a man father of many nations who did not yet have children because he knew it would be, he is a God who watches us. He is a God who puts us in situations, Deuteronomy 8 says, hungering manna so that he can feed us, and teach us that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. I want to talk about the words that have come from his mouth about you. And let me ask you, are you feeding on them what he says about you? Are you feeding on what others say about you? What you think about you? What your boss says about you? What that relative who's rejected you your whole life says about you? What is it that you're eating? Because one is the bread of affliction, and the other is bread that has come from heaven. One leads you to eternal life, and the other leads you to less than the life you should have even now. I want you to consider the obstacles that Abraham faces. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be, without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. This is not weird hyper faith. He's not walking around saying, I'm just going to declare that it's living. I'm just walking around saying, wife's healthy is all, all good. No, he faced the fact that there was a significant problem to overcome. He didn't deny it. And yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. The faith of Abraham that you are now a part of is the faith that says, there are problems all around me. There is no way that the promise that God has given me could be true looking at what I see, and yet I am persuaded that it is true because I serve a God who even raises the dead. Yeah. This faith doesn't deny that there are problems. This faith doesn't deny that there's hardship. This faith doesn't deny that your bones are crushed in your body at times. It simply does not waver in its trust Amen. that God can change your situation and hear this, in many cases, has already declared it changed. Let's be honest. If we measure our lives by the amount of 
actual literal sins that have occurred in our lives. None of you, none of me, <laughs> none of me. I'm in the plural now. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I am not righteous. And yet the Bible has called me righteous to the point that it speaks a little bit, uh, it, almost in a schizophrenic realm. So that if I sin, it's no longer me who sin, but sin living in me, and I count myself dead to it. Well, is Paul crazy? Or is he trying to tell us something? Yes, we realize there is another power working in you, but kill it. Count it as dead. You are righteous. Why? Because God has called you righteous. Friends, if we can learn what we are, you will not have to be taught how to behave. You can stand in a room where people think less of you than God does. You might stand in a room where you think less of you than God does. But when you feast on the word in your spirit that he says about you, you begin to act as more than they say or you have said about you. This is so vitally important. If the body of Christ knew who we were in Christ, you would not see Christians settling for less than God has for them. So fat on the distraction that is junk food. So willing to forsake what is ours for something less than. If you saw a man digging in the dumpster behind our church looking for scraps of food, you would not assume that he was a Saudi Arabian oil prince, would you? Because what would a prince be doing in the dumpster? But you see a man looking for entertainment on Hell's box office or digging in a dumpster of a computer or a woman judging her worth based on a picture in Cosmopolitan magazine. And we don't think anything of that. It's no different. It is absolutely no different. By the way, if anybody reads Vanity Fair in here, you need to know that that magazine's title was taken from Paul Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress. It was the city that was being destroyed that later became the city of destruction. What a name for a magazine. Christians, why do we accept conformity with the world? It's not just conformity when they push you to sin. It's conformity when they cause you to think less of yourself than God has said about you. Have we not seen in our school systems, if you tell children they come from animals, they begin to act like animals? Well, if you tell Christians they're something less than saints, they will be something less than saints. You tell them that they have to cry for 10 hours and maybe God will do something for them. And guess what? They cry and cry and cry and it doesn't happen. You tell them that they have already been endowed with heavenly things and it is their job to stand up and use them. And guess what? It happens. I'm not teaching you a theory. I'm telling you what my life has been about. The king of the universe did for me what I could not do for myself. Now I refuse to lessen it by talking about how bad off I am. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he has promised. We need to understand that wavering, wiffle waffling, it's not, (laughs) we say we have no problem believing that God can do it. When you have a problem believing that God can cause you to do it, you are in effect accusing God of not being big enough to use you. Everybody understands that Jesus walked on the water and you believe that. How many of you believe when he says for you to step out of the boat that you walk on the water though? 
See, this is where the rubber meets the road. You have no problem praying with me. Chris and I are at the altar and Chris says, Lord God, give him the faith. And Chris has no problem believing that Eric can have the faith for it because it's someone else. But what happens when God says, Chris, I want you to stand and do it? Is this where our faith shrinks back? Are we sure that God will do it for someone else, but not so sure he'll do it for us? And why is that? Is it because there's an adversary in your ear all of the time telling you what you have and have not done correct and all the reasons that you don't measure up and all the reasons that the king of the universe doesn't want you when Hebrews 10 says you are to come boldly into his presence? You're already called sons. You're already redeemed. We don't need to wait for God to show up. He's waiting for us to show up. We don't need to wait for God to move. By definition, he is already moving. You've never seen wind that was standing still. It's not wind. Ruach, God's Spirit, is by definition on the move. The question is, are you moving with Him or have you failed to perceive what He's doing? Our God is not stagnant. He's been working from the very beginning, but are you working with Him or are you just ignoring it? You are a son and a prince. Our father Abraham understood this and it was many years, decades in seeing the fulfillment of the promise and he never in his lifetime saw it like God spoke of it. But he will. We will all join him at a feast. We will sit down on a mountain. Isaiah 25 says, where the earth and sky have fled from his presence, Revelation says, and we will sit on this mountain and we will watch death get rolled up like a garment and thrown away. And we will have the finest of meats. And I don't know why he does it, but it seems that he ages wine. <laughs> Sorry, Abel, it won't be iced tea. <laughs> and there will be a party for the children of God because there is no more disgrace. Well, if you believe that, you don't have to walk in disgrace now. You can smile in the face of your enemy. You can muster your courage when your knees are knocking together because your body fails, but your spirit prevails. Amen. Turn with me to Samuel 20. Is it all right if we preach a little bit tonight? First. Now let Mandy beat you every time. She likes to win. That's good. God uses that desire. Starting in verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I surely will sound out my father by this day, by this time, the day after tomorrow. Sound out. You ever heard that? Fred was in the Navy. That's a shipping term. To sound out something means to find out how deep it is. This brother is going to examine his father. He's going to find out what is in his heart. You know what's in the man's heart by his actions. Ladies, don't let him tell you anything different. <laughs> Lips lie. Actions don't. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. 
So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. You know, love for the king of Israel has always caused you to run the risk of being pitted against the members of your own family. Who is a bigger enemy to David than Saul? And yet Jonathan's here taking a pledge. May God call the enemies of David into account. I guess from a father's perspective, that would look disloyal. But then again, every one of us has a question before us. Do we want the favor of our Father in heaven? Or do we want the favor of the brothers that are around us? This is what got Joseph thrown in a hole, but it is also what got Joseph made king of the world. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. But he loved him as he loved himself. This kind of selfless love echoes, it foreshadows the kind of love that King Jesus, the rightful king of Israel, has for us when he entered into a covenant with us. He promises to cut off the enemies of the king of Israel from the earth, and we have promised to love him as we have loved ourselves, and he has already demonstrated that love for us. All of these ancient covenants have the same thing in mind. At the time that this covenant is made, David is not king. What is he? He's an outlaw. He's running for his life. When he has a chance to kill Saul, in 1 Samuel 24, 20, he has a chance to kill Saul. And he doesn't do it. You know why David didn't kill Saul? There's so many reasons, but let me give you one you may not have thought of. But a king is not an assassin. And in his heart, David was already king of Israel. Why was he king of Israel? Because sometime when he was maybe 20, 25 years old, God had called him a king. And he lived like an outlaw until he was 30. But in his heart, he was king. And the same God that called him king had allowed this man to be king. He figured if God installed him, God will remove him. But it will not happen by my hand because I am a king. I don't need to make it happen by my own hand. I simply need to wait on the Lord. Come on, does that sound like a prophecy you heard in worship? That was Jeremiah 17, if you'd like to read about it. Cursed is the man that leans on flesh. Cursed is that man. You do not have to make righteousness happen for you. You do not have to make your calling happen for you. You do not have to make your life look like the picture God showed you. You know what your job is? Live. Live. Live in love. When you do those things trusting Him, He will take care of the rest. Psalm 138 says, It is His purpose in your life. His purpose. He bought you. He gave you a purpose. He will fulfill it. Your job is to live, to love, and to be trusting in Him. Trust-grounded obedience to His Word takes care of everything. The devil would have you believe that you never quite measure up. Never quite measure up. Of course, you need to consider that source. Why would he feel that way? <laughs> the Bible says my foot is already on his head. I don't know about you, but if we're fighting and you're under my feet, I don't care what you have to say anymore. You're defeated. It's done. Your opinion no longer matters. You rebelled, you resisted, and now you've been repelled. It's done. We don't need to sit around and talk to an accuser who's already been thrown out of the heavenness. 
The Bible says you stand free from accusation. The book of Colossians says that. You are free from accusation without spot or blemish. I have already read the end of the book and you are a bride coming down from heaven beautifully adorned. Why would we think of ourselves as anything less? The reason is we are listening to the wrong voices. And one of them might be your own. So David, he is declared king, but he is not walking in his kingship yet. But in his heart, he set aside that he is king. The problem is there's an antichrist-like figure. This reminds me very much, by the way, David, was he picked because of his height or his appearance? You might say he had no beauty or majesty to draw men to him. Like another king of Israel who would come. Was he the first among his brothers that would be picked? No, he had seven brothers. That meant he was the eighth. The weren't. The one that nobody would have picked. He was just a little too common. In Matthew 27, 11, Jesus confesses before Pilate that he is, in fact, the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel before Israel has received him as king. Sounds very much like David, but in his heart, he is king. Why is he king? Because God has said he is king. He's king and his soldiers are not fighting. He's king and his subjects are not present. He is king and they have all deserted him, but he is king. Why? Because the circumstances says he's king? He's about to die like a common criminal. But he is king. Why is he king? Because God said he was king. They buried his body in a grave, but it didn't stay there. Turn with me to Hebrews 2. In the second chapter of Hebrews, starting in the fifth verse, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. These words are often applied to Jesus and rightfully so. He's the federal head of the human race. But that is, that is not what it says. It says, what is man that you're mindful of him? Not a singular man, not a man who would come in the future, but what is man? that you care for him. Our Lord God subjected the entire universe to a man. All mankind was meant to rule. Not all men are reaching their destiny and only in Christ does it come true. But if you are in Christ, you are above the angelic realm. Listen to how he acknowledges this. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to Him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Then He goes on to describe bringing many sons to glory. You may not feel like you are above the angelic realm, it may not be something that just resounds in your soul. You might look at yourself and see that you've got some bags under your eyes. Not you, but me. You might see some hair falling out. <laughs> 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 you, 
You might see something that you don't like very much. But you know what you can see? There's a man in the Godhead. And it's Yeshua. You can see him who was a common rabbi of his day. I'm not speaking about a sinless nature. I'm just talking about the way he appeared to everyone else. And he has now got all of the authority of God at his disposal. And he is God. This ought to give you hope in your most dire situation. They killed him like a criminal. They treated him like a drunkard. His own friends and family, the second chapter of Mark says, thought he was crazy. But what did God say he was? A king. You need to decide whether or not you belong at the king's table. But before you make that decision, I would like to ask you something. If Matthew owned a company, let's just say it's the Perot Company, if he made you president, how pleased do you think he would be to walk into the conference room and continually hear you say, I don't have what it takes to be president. I'm really not a good president. I don't know why he chose me to be president. Somebody else should be president. How long would he put up with that? How long do you think the king of the universe wants to hear that the position he purchased you for, you're unworthy for? This is false humility, saints. We can all acknowledge you couldn't do anything to earn it. Let's get over that. Now let's be what he's called us to be. Right? How many times have you beaten? Let me ask you something. How much could you read the word before it would be enough? Hmm? How many hours could you pray before you had prayed enough? Let's be honest. If we play the righteousness game, when do you ever come out ahead? How much TV do you have to cut out before you're finally holy? How much food do you have to cut out before you're finally holy? How much... Let's put you in a burlap sack and torture you every moment of the day and throw you in a monk's cave somewhere in Rome. Right? You holy then? Obviously not. Right? right? So holiness doesn't come from these things. Holiness comes from simply God crediting you with righteousness and you doing what he says to do. Who's holy? The man who abstains from everything in the world, including life, or the man who does everything that God says to do? Boy, the church has really wrestled with this and lost, hadn't it? We are great at handing out rule books, and we are horrible at being obedient to what God says to do. Mm. Like Jesus, King David was made king over a remnant before he was made king over all of Israel. I don't want to read it to you now, but in 2 Samuel 2.7, we see that he was first made king in Hebron. And then later, in 2 Samuel 5, he was made king over a united Israel. Well, King Jesus is first made king in a remnant. When you recognized him as your Lord, he became Lord over you and the remnant of Israel that had already come in in the first century and many centuries since. He will one day be king over a united Israel. It'll have Gibeonites in it, men like you and I that were never part of Israel, but because of a really good deal that God made us, we're his servants in the house of the Lord forever. And it'll have true Israelis in it. And all of Israel will be saved and they will be under one king. When this happens, when the united kingdom happens, David set out to do something. Look at 2 Samuel 8.
One of you's there. Where are the rest of you? In Second Samuel 8. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines, and he subdued them. Where have you heard that word before? It's in Genesis. It's man's original occupation. It's interesting, and I don't want to teach this tonight either. I just don't have time. But when you look at David, you see a man who brings joyful worship and the portable presence of God into a tabernacle, a fleshly dwelling. You see a man who wars and defeats all of Israel's enemies. In other words, you see the king of Israel who is not always recognized as king of Israel, but he carries the presence of God in joyful worship and subdues the enemies of God. There was another king, Saul. This was a king that was the people's choice. A king that ruled on consensus and was ruled by his own fears so that he did evil and would not do what God said. And yet there is a third king. He was the son of David. He came after David's reign. A time of peace when a permanent dwelling for God was made. He also took 12 advisors and set them on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. Also the nations came to him for his wisdom and his understanding. Are you beginning to see something in these three kingships? We have the first coming of Jesus. We have the rise of the Antichrist. And we have the second coming of Jesus. There's much to be learned from this, but right now, we're with the warrior king subduing enemies. And listen to what he does when you have a united Israel. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Ammon from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah, when he went to restore the control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. He destroyed their weapons of war and made them have peace. When the Armenians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Armenian kingdom of Damascus, and the Armenians became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. When our King Jesus is king over a united Israel, there will be a complete and total victory over all the enemies of God. If you've ever read the 15th chapter of Corinthians, you know starting in the 20th verse and working your way down, he says he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Then the end will come when the Son hands over the kingdom to the Father who first subjected the kingdom to him. This is the goal and the plan of God. There is one man who has made it into the Godhead in a glorified, resurrected body. In him we will all find victory. But the word says some things about us right now. Now, an amazing thing, David did something, just like, he, like Jesus did something. When David became king, it was an ancient covenant in place that he wanted to honor. When Jesus was declared king, even in a remnant sense, he did something. The Old Testament scripture said when he ascended on high, he received gifts from men. When the writer of Ephesians began to elaborate upon this in Ephesians 4, he changed it. 
He said when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers and evangelists to prepare God's people for works of service. Both kings came into a kingship, and they both began to do things. I want to show you in 1 John 3 something. Then we're going back to the OT, the Older Testament. Older, not old. It's not old, it's not outdated, it's not useless. It is life, it is a honeypot, it is revelation. It is the best you can possibly get. 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. You may see miserable circumstances in your life now, but you can look at Jesus and know you will be like Him. The Father did something for you. He lavished something upon you. Now, I know you guys don't watch these kind of movies, but I do. Who's seen Dumber? Dumb and Dumber. Remember these poor idiots finally open a suitcase that they've been carrying. They've been carrying this suitcase forever. They've got no money. They sold a bird that was already dead to a blind kid. All kind of horrible things. They finally break open this suitcase. And what's in it? Millions of dollars. Right? The next scene, they're laying on a bed, swimming in money, blowing their nose on it, throwing it in the air, you know. It had been lavished upon them. You know what's absurd? They had it the entire time. When they didn't have any food to eat, they had that. When they shared a little moped in the Rocky Mountains, (laughs) they had that. When they reduced themselves to degrading behavior like selling a dead bird to a blind kid. They had millions of dollars. They just didn't know it. What do you already have? And dumb and dumber just don't know it. Mm. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 4. I never promised that any of you would like me. John, this is the fourth chapter, fourth verse. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell down and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. This young man happens to be five years old. He's crippled. He's from a place called Lodabar, which, depending on your Bible dictionary, speaks of a very dry place. We're going to see in a minute he refers to himself as a dead dog. But he did have something in his favor. Whose son was he? And Jonathan was a man who was in covenant with the king of Israel. 
There was an ancient covenant in place that is about to dramatically affect Mephibosheth's life. Does it matter what Mephibosheth thinks about himself at this point? Does it matter what he is able to do for himself at this point? Does it matter at all? No, there's simply a covenant in place. In fact, he can't walk right. He has nobody to teach him. He has nobody to feed him. He has nobody to protect him. And in his own estimation, we're going to hear that he is a dead dog. But when the king of the universe says something about you, you better not make him out to be a liar. Turn with me to the ninth chapter. Was it his fault he was dropped? Was it his fault that his grandfather was wicked? Yeah. Was it his fault that he was born to a dynasty that was diseased with cowardice and the fear of man. And yet all of those things were true about him. Saints, it may not be your fault that you were born a sinner, that you're a descendant of Adam, but we are all from the same disease stock and we carry the same problems. It was not when you were cleaned up and at your best that the king of the universe came and spoke to you. It's when you were crippled in both feet in a dry place with nobody to protect you, nobody to feed you, and you realized you were utterly helpless. And if you've never been in that place, then you are not saved. You're still leaning on your own arm and calling it God's. But if you've been in that place, if like me, from time to time you frequent that place, then you know what it is to experience life from the dead when the king of the universe calls you something better than what you know you are. Mm -hmm. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Does this have anything to do with Mephibosheth? <laughs> Get over yourself. It's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> it's got something to do with the obedience of Jesus and the covenant that his own arm worked for you. He didn't say, hey, look, I've always kind of liked Mephibosheth. Could you go find him? He said, is there anyone left who is a part of that covenant? He would have taken anyone. Jesus told the parable about people called to a wedding, and those who were invited didn't come. So what did he say? Go get the lame. Go get the beggars off of the street. They'll come. And here we are. But you know what? When he gives you his garments and he puts you at his wedding table. You're not lame or a beggar anymore. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. Can you see how they might have been a little nervous since they worked for Saul to show up before David? I know I was there when he was throwing spears at you and stuff, but, you know, I hope you didn't think I was with him. <laughs> the king asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? What is the point of salvation? That God's kindness would be displayed in your life. Not your righteousness. Not your ability to follow his rules. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, 
He is crippled in both feet. Does this enhance or detract from God's kindness? The fact that he's crippled. It enhances it, doesn't it? I mean, it shows that he's even, it's even an even kinder deed than if he could take care of himself. He has no hope except the king of Israel now. <laughs> this might be the spirit in which Romans 6 is written where he says, so if my sin enhances God's glory, shall we continue sinning? And he says, ha, hala, <laughs> by no means. It actually means heck no. <laughs> it really does. It actually means heavens. No. We died to sin. I'm not saying that the worse you do in the Lord, the more glory he gets. What I'm saying is you never did that good anyway. Now die, die to what once bound you so that you might live to him who has freed you. We're not arguing for a license for immorality in here. We're not telling you shoot for the minimum. But what we are saying is, let's go ahead and acknowledge you're not going to hit perfection. So, strive by dying to what bound you and live to him. He's not punishing you, saints. He's not looking for a chance to go, oh, Bob slipped up! Bam! I got him! If he was waiting for that, Bob, wouldn't he have crushed you a long time ago? See, these are preacher's tools to fill an offering. They're preacher's tools to fill an altar. If I can make you feel bad enough about yourself, maybe out of guilt you'll do something. I think guilt is out of place for God's people. Guilt is something that you do away with as you come in the presence of God. You are made to walk with a clean and pure conscience before him so that you can hear his voice. Sin does not keep God from moving in your life. If it did, you never would have gotten saved. The problem with sin is it keeps you from moving in God's life for you. Let's be honest now. You know when you hadn't done something right, you're a little timid to come into his presence, right? You're supposed to be. And what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to confess it. Turn completely 180 from it. And then the same faith that saved you, you say, Lord, I believe that you're crediting me with righteousness even though I don't feel like it. I know it can seem trite to say if you do the right things, the feelings will come. But I want to tell you if the alternative is to be ruled by your feelings, your heart is deceitful above all things. That's right. Jeremiah 17 also says that, as do the Proverbs many times. It's the wellspring of life, but it's already poisoned. You need to begin to believe what the Word says about you, not how you feel about you. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. I thought Denham Springs, Louisiana was a bad place. <laughs> so King David had him brought from Lodabar. <laughs> Sounds like one of those states now that I think about it. They're below the bar. From the house of Makir, son of Amiel. I was talking about Mississippi. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. Do you have a, uh, a, a punctuation mark there? You know, there is no punctuation in Hebrew. <laughs> so how does that work? The translators are trying to convey something that is written in the rhyme and meter of the Hebrew. 
The very letters that the prophets wrote this down with are spaced in such a way to build anticipation that David is excited to see Mephibosheth. You tell me next time you're travailing before the Lord. David was excited to see Mephibosheth. Why, did he suddenly get healed? Nope. Did he suddenly get a new ancestry? Nope. Did he suddenly have lots of wealth and means? Something he could do for David? Nope. He was in the worst shape he would ever be in in his life, but David was still excited to see him. Come on now. You ever seen a serial killer? His parents on TV? <laughs> yeah? Oh. Everybody's talking about this one, did horrible things, so crimes against humanity, atrocities, blah, blah, blah. But what's his mom and dad say? We still love him. The king of the universe is excited to see you regardless of what you've done. This is why he shows up and says, Cain, sin's beside you. He's trying to master you. Don't let it. That's why even after Cain blew it and killed somebody, God didn't kill him. He didn't squish him. And when Cain said, this punishment's too hard for me, he said, I'll put a mark on you to protect you. God is not invested in your failure. He died so that you would succeed. Come on now. God died it would be more appropriate to say Jesus died so that you could succeed. He's not invested in your failure. How invested are you in your failure? Are you just lowering the bar? Are you saying maybe people won't think much or require much of me if I don't speak too highly of myself? I think God wants people who are ready to bat clean up. People who say, Lord, I may not be much, we can all agree on that, but you've made me competent. I want to stand at the plate and hit it out of the park for you. Give me a chance. Now, sometimes Christians are like those ridiculous black birds on the television show. Little kids went, no, after you. No, after you. No, after you. And neither one ever goes through the door. We are so falsely humble, have such a wrong view that nothing will get done because... I mean, we don't want anybody to think we think too highly of ourselves. Is it wrong for Matthew to say him because he can? Is it? God made him for that purpose. Is it wrong for Brandon to play the drums because he can? Is it wrong for Steve to be hospitable because he can? Are they showing off or are they using what God gave them? Are they recognizing that they were endowed with certain things that God meant to be used? Who in here thinks they were shortchanged by God and he didn't endow them with anything? Maybe we've accepted too low of a view of our own lives. Maybe we've even done it thinking that it was somehow righteous. The least righteous thing you could do is act like you're not worthy to do anything for him. He saved you so that you would do something for him. And he did it at a time that was evident you hadn't done anything for yourself. That's the point. <coughs> when, when Mephibosheth, boy, that's a mouthful, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. Number one thing about your relationship with the Lord, you should not fear him. And when the scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, we're speaking about the kind of respect a healthy son has for a healthy father, not like a man has of a jailer. 
He's excited to see her. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness because you're a great guy. It's not what it says, is it? I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. On the basis of Jesus' work done on your behalf, God is showing you kindness. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather. And you will always eat at my table. What a compliment. Listen to the response, because I guarantee you it's been your response. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you notice a dead dog like me? Can we all agree that that's an acceptable response once? (laughs) But it's surely not an acceptable response when the king says, No, you're a son at my table. How many times can you call yourself a dead dog and him say you're a son before he's insulted that you are not listening to him? See, the king of the universe has said some things about you. We're going to read them together in a few minutes. And when you refuse to believe them, you say, but I just don't feel like they're true. You don't have to feel like they're true. Accept them as true. Begin to dwell on them, meditate on them, chew on them, speak them over you until you teach your flesh to feel like it's supposed to feel. Oh, I don't like that. You're saying I can't acknowledge my emotions. I'm saying you don't let an emotion that is hostile to the Word of God control you. And if you think that I've got that mastered, talk to Jim. She'll set you straight. But I know this. To the extent that in trust-grounded obedience we try to do this, he honors it. And I can say, every one of you that I know well, I've watched you do it. I've watched you do it and seen God honor it. I want the church to know what God thinks of you. Did you know that even the New Testament says my Father delights in giving you the kingdom? You know that Jesus said to those of you that have stood beside me in my trial, I will confer on you a kingdom. You know that Jesus reminded the followers, he said, I remember you didn't choose me. I chose you. All of those things are true. All of them. If this message is depressing to you, you need to adjust your meter. Uh, I want to tell you, nothing's wrong with the Word. And as poor as my communication styles may be, nothing's wrong with me. I am the pastor that God has called to be here, and I'm doing a competent job because He called me to be competent. If this Word doesn't set well with you, you might need to consider that you need to make an adjustment. Because God's Word says things about you that you have to begin to believe if you're going to be what He's called you to be. Does a man have to feel like the head of his house to be the head of his house? You are seated in the heavenly realms. This doesn't say if, Kelsey does a good job today, he's seated in the heavenly realms, but if he misses the dishes, then he's no longer in the heavenly realms. It is a blanket statement. It comes from Ephesians 2, 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. If you read it in its context, it was for a purpose, and it had nothing to do with you. It had to do with proving God's manifold wisdom, that he lavished upon you grace, mercy, love. Boy, isn't that freeing to think it doesn't have to do with you? 
Because if it depended upon me, I would have blown it so many times it couldn't work anymore. Good thing that it doesn't depend on me. The only thing required of me to participate in God's plan is that I trust Him. And sometimes it's just a little thread I'm hanging on to. And sometimes I can't muster a smile. And sometimes I'm beat down to a little greasy spot on the ground. But how dare I stay there? Well, how long can I stay there? Well, you fight to be weak and you'll stay that way. I'm going to fight to praise Him and He will raise me up. Romans 8.14 says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Abel Torres, you love that one, huh? You are a son of God. This is like Mephibosheth being seated at the table. Everything God has, he's given to you. There, it's true. I whipped Gabe. I whipped him right in front of the school the other day. I think they're going to call social services on me. <laughs> but there is nothing in my life that I would not give him. Nothing. I would give him my very life because I love him. Just because you're disciplined of the Lord from time to time doesn't mean that you're not his son. Hebrews 12 says it's the proof that you're his son. Ephesians 3.6 This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. We are co-heirs of everything that has been promised to God's people. That is an amazing thing when you consider we got Texans in here, Mexicans in here, Vietnamese in here. We don't know what Matt is. <laughs> and yet, things that were promised to the monarchs and patriarchs of Israel belong to you as well. How is it that we could stretch in the heavenlies and believe something like that, but cannot believe that when you look in the mirror, God is pleased with what He sees? How can you believe that you're going to get what King David got, that you're going to rule and reign the earth, but you cannot find the strength to look in the mirror and believe that God is happy with you? Well, as long as it's a faraway place and I don't have to be intimately involved with the details, I can have faith in it. That's no faith at all. Faith in Yahweh God must show up in your life and it starts with what you think about you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus was made to be your bloody sacrificial atonement, you were made to be righteous. When you don't see yourself as righteous, when you don't act righteous, when you don't feel righteous, it is an affront to His sacrifice. I don't let people call me just an old sinner. If they say it, I agree with them. I, I mean, if you say, oh, that dude is a sinner, I say, you're right, the worst of all of them. But God has made me a saint. I will never leave it there. Because for me to remain a sinner means Jesus didn't do enough. Or I'm not receiving what Jesus did. Galatians 3, 26 through 27, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ. Have clothed yourself with Christ. Come on now, ladies. You ever got a garment that you really liked? I mean, you couldn't wait to show your friends. Miss Suzanne. <laughs> yeah, some of you have little special shopping budgets. You can't wait to go get something that's pretty and makes you feel good. Well, every day you are clothed with Christ. 
So you may have a zit that popped out in an area you don't want it. And maybe, maybe your uh, crown is, is not as handsome as it once was. And maybe, 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 maybe God says you are clothed with Christ. You're as pretty as he said you are. You're as handsome as he said you are. You are clothed with Christ. Could we say that enough? Clothed with Christ? I'd like some of you to be more clothed with Christ so that there's less of you showing. I mean that both literally and uh, spiritually. It's a great thing when people begin to become modest in the kingdom. <laughs> You're clothed with Christ. Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Everything that God has invested in Jesus, you are now a partaker of. You are full in Christ. How do you feel purposeless? You're disconnected with your head. How do you feel like your life has no meaning, no purpose, you're failing? You're disconnected with the head. How do you dwell in emotions that you cannot associate with Jesus? Well, you have become disconnected with your head. 2 Peter 1.4 Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Come on now. Look, Mephibosheth was made a, a son of the king but you know what he would never be? I mean, he would never be genetically David. But you have been made to participate in the very nature of God. That means that you begin to smell like him. The Bible calls it the aroma of Christ. You begin to look like him. It's called clothed with Christ. It's as if you were taking on the DNA of God. That is an amazing thing. Now don't you misquote me. I'm not being new agey. I'm not saying you become God. I'm saying you're a chip off the bigger block and where you were once an alien and an outsider, you are now an insider and a son and a rightful heir. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Quit criticizing God's temple. <laughs> I do not allow the people that I love in my own home to criticize and critique their appearance. Because after a while it bothers me, since I think they're all pretty hot. Pretty good looking. I think they're attractive people. Till Brandon came to live Let's be honest. Come on, husbands, boyfriends. How much do you like to hear your date, your honey, your beautiful, sit next to you and say, I'm so ugly. I just, I just, I, I hate when my hair is like this. And blah. I mean, after a while, it is annoying, isn't it? Yeah, you don't want to get an amen on that one? It's annoying, isn't it? Well, how do you think the king of the universe feels when you're criticizing his temple? He chose you. He chose you. If that's not a self-esteem raiser, I don't know what would be. Colossians 1, 10 through 12. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with a little bit of power. Being strengthened with all power. Tell me you don't have enough to do what it takes. Why not? He didn't give you enough. The word says strengthened with all power. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 is a quote from Exodus 19. 
It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You don't have to be in what they call full-time ministry, and that's ridiculous. There is no other kind of ministry except full-time. If somebody claims to be a part-time minister, get away from them. You are all full-time priests of the living God. You are the you in this statement. If God calls you a priest, who is anybody else to say that you don't have the right to speak for him? That you don't have the right to forgive in his place? That you don't have the right to love for him? That you don't have the right to act on his behalf? Certainly I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm convinced that there is no link in the chain between you and the throne room of God. There's just God and you. My job is to remind you that you have open access, not to be a link in the chain between you and him. People who want to put themselves between you and access to God are denying the fact that you are already a priest. You don't have to have your pastor pray for you. You already are a priest. Well, why would you choose to get your pastor to pray for you? Because as a priest, God has given you some tools. Praise God for them. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. You do not choose somebody to be your ambassador that you are embarrassed of. This goes on to say, as if God were making an appeal through you. You have the potential at every moment to be speaking. Remember Adley Stevenson? He went before the UN. He spoke for President Kennedy. He spoke better than President Kennedy, honestly. He resolved something on behalf of the United States, and it's the only reason I know his name. He had no beauty or majesty himself. He had no real authority himself. He simply had been designated to speak on behalf of someone else, and he solved the biggest crisis of the 60s. You are an ambassador, and it's not about you. It's about the one you're speaking for. Ephesians 1.18 may be the best for last. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. You need to pay careful attention to this wording. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. We talk all the time about what we are inheriting. We talk very little about what God is inheriting. He is looking forward to the day that Dustin and Chris literally, physically belong to Him. You are His inheritance. Come on now, let's pretend for a moment. Let's just think for a moment that CJ, CJ has got this wealthy relative. I hope he doesn't really have one. It's on the internet. I actually don't hope that he don't. I mean, don't get me wrong. <laughs> and that wealthy relative has spent a long time setting aside a trust for CJ. Do you think CJ would look forward to that? Think he would want that? Think he might even count off the days until he was old enough to own the inheritance? God describes you in those terms. You are his inheritance in the saints. If I walked up and said, oh, CJ, your, your trust fund's really pathetic. <laughs> Isn't that pretty insulting? Well, be careful what you tell God about his trust fund. You are his inheritance. Y'all stand to your feet. If Jennifer attacks me with a shoe or something because I went past nine, Form a human shield around your fearless leader. <laughs> hey, do me a favor. I gave these out Sunday, right? 
And a good 50% of them remained in the church, which kind of defeated the purpose of printing them off and giving them to you. And then I'm giving them to you, to you again tonight. Even if you don't want it, don't hurt my feelings by leaving it here, okay? Do me the courtesy of throwing it away somewhere outside of the church. And if you, you know, believe that you were called to this church and that God might speak through the leadership of the church for your behalf, you might tape it somewhere in your house or your car or somewhere that you would see it. You might even learn to speak words of affirmation by saying it. You know, the Hebrews meditated by mumbling, speaking the word of God. It's pretty difficult to mumble to yourself that you're the righteousness of Christ all day long and then think you're a dog. Mighty God, Lord, we, we ask that you would give us the courage to believe what you've said about us. We can, like Abraham, acknowledge that it looks as if we're good as dead. Death is all we've ever really produced. But I'm not going to waver in my trust of you. Lord, I believe that you're able to perform all that you have promised. I choose to believe that I have what this word says I have. That I am what you say I am. And Lord, as I dare to believe it, I'm asking that you would encourage every person here by letting them see glimpses of the age that is to come. When the sons of God are revealed and the earth is liberated from its bondage to decay. Mighty God, let us walk with the scorpions beneath our feet. Let us walk, mighty God, in healing and power that we might taste of what you have already said we are and, Lord God, we might live up, live a life worthy of the calling that's on it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 So it's Wednesday. I hope to see you again Sunday. <laughs>